Hello everyone, welcome to our weekly Dhamma broadcast. I'm joined today by Chris, Ulu, and Jim. Chris will be doing the broadcasting and also helping to post and ask questions. Ulu and Jim are organizing people's questions. So the format is I'll give a short talk on the Dhamma. And then in the meantime, you're welcome to post questions into chat. You're also welcome to comment in chat. But once we start the question and answer period, we won't allow further conversation in the chat. The only thing in the chat should be questions. Questions should be about meditation practice. We order them according to tiers. And the top tier questions are those that need an answer, those that are uh, genuinely in need in the sense that an answer we think will probably help that person in their practice. Lower tier questions are speculative questions or questions, of course, that are outside of the realm of meditation practice and Buddhism. So today's talk is about suffering. Dukkha. We have this word in Buddhism, the Pali word dukkha. And it gets translated in lots of different ways. Some people avoid using the word suffering as a translation. I like the word suffering. It's a fairly dreadful word. It's a word that evokes unpleasant thought, unpleasant emotions, fear maybe, aversion certainly, suffering. Not a very uplifting topic. But it's a, it's a, as a word, it's a strong word and it's a large word. So it's a big word. In a philosophical sense, it covers a lot of ground. The way we use it in the English language is quite versatile, flexible. We suffer from things. We suffer from, we suffer under delusion, I think they say. We suffer from hearing loss, loss of appetite. And we suffer. We have pain and Sadness, sorrow, lamentation, despair. We suffer loss. We suffer from change. From uncertainty. From crippling mental illnesses. The big reason, I think, why it's not a very pleasant topic. Not a very agreeable topic is because of our lack of appreciation, I think, of the importance of suffering. Why Buddhism has a bit of a tarnished image. It's because we don't want to think about these things. And this is an, an important part of core Buddhist theory, 
our our aversion to facing things like suffering but suffering is the problem i mean it sums everything up all of these kinds of suffering are all a problem we we suffer in so many different ways when there's when there's an issue the core of it involves suffering the core reason for trying to fix things trying to change things trying to achieve things we suffer from wanting things we suffer from our unachieved ambitions unachieved goals we suffer simply because we want things We suffer because we don't think too much about suffering. We avoid it as much as possible. We chase after pleasant experiences, of course, where we're like mindless zombies, crazy people without a clear mindfulness, without the benefit of a clear mind and mindfulness. We're unable to face reality because of suffering, because of the suffering inherent in our state of being. When we chase after pleasant experiences, trying to avoid suffering as much as possible, it creates suffering. It creates stress. We're forced to work harder to get what we want. We're driven to lose sleep and appetite to lose friendships and uh, just a stability of mind, a peace of mind is thrown out the window in favor of the endless pursuit of sensuality and the objects of our desire, ambitions and so on. Based on our arrogance, our conceit and our views, we chase after things and we are unable to come to terms with what's really going on and all the suffering we're creating. Facing this, facing reality, and, and reality in all of its aspects. The pleasant ones, the unpleasant ones, the suffering aspect, the pleasure aspect. Things that we wouldn't normally think of as stressful or suffering. They can all cause us suffering if we see them without, if we lack the clarity to see them as they are. See them through our twisted, corrupted, perverted lens, the rose-colored glasses. Pleasure can cause us great suffering because of the addiction that it cultivates. When we see pleasure clearly, seeing pleasure clearly is an important part of freeing ourselves from suffering just as important as seeing pain and mental suffering clearly so this morning in our study group this topic came up 
the topic of dukkha, dukkha vedana. There are four kinds of suffering. Dukkha vedana, dukkha sabhava, dukkha lakana, and dukkha satcha. When we think of the Four Noble Truths, the First Noble Truth, the Truth of Suffering, we tend to confuse it with Dukkha Vedana. Well, when you're in pain, yep, that's the truth of suffering that exists, but that's not the truth of suffering. Truth of suffering is actually a quite specific phenomenon. It's a quite specific reality, truth. It's not just that this is suffering or that is suffering. It's much more than that. So to start at the first one, Dukkha Vedana is how we mostly see suffering. We confuse, as I said, we confuse more uh, profound versions or profound types of suffering or ways of seeing suffering with this way of seeing suffering. Dukkha Vedana is the idea that Suffering is painful feelings, whether they be physical or mental, that's suffering. When you have physical pain, you're suffering. When you have mental pain, you're suffering. And seeing suffering this way, seeing this as, as suffering, understanding this to be the core problem, is a big part of what leads us to chase after pleasure and and seek out solutions and fixes to our problems, to run away from reality, prevents us from seeing reality clearly, from facing reality. So the solution to Dukkha Vedana, the suffering feeling, is a fix. If you have a physical ailment, if you can, you just change your physical state. Maybe you're sitting cross-legged and there's pain. Well, there's nothing to learn there because the answer is to stop sitting cross-legged on the floor. So people sit in comfortable couches or chairs. Some meditators have to sit on a chair. There's no shame in that. But quite often meditators will sit in a chair or on a comfortable seat for no other reason than to avoid Dukkha Vedana. That's wrong Wrong understanding. That's a wrong wrong approach. You're avoiding reality. Pain is not something to be avoided. The practice of Buddhism is not to escape Dukkha Vedana. That's not the truth of suffering. For mental illness, well, maybe distract yourself or take marijuana. Soon marijuana will be legal. It's legal here in Canada, I guess, but soon it will be legal in America, I think. And that's a big thing for some people because, well, it's probably better than many of the pharmaceutical drugs that are being used to treat things like depression. I, I would agree that it's probably better, probably less addictive, probably less intrusive in the brain. Uh, but still, it's escaping. It's escapism. And with when you don't have the tools, the skills, the ability, the teachings required, to be able to face reality, then it, it can be the only other choice, the only choice for some people. It's what they choose. But this is wrong, the wrong approach. This approach doesn't actually help in the long run. 
It's a quick fix and it's an avoidance. And it has a whole host of other problems because of the because of the attitude of escapism the added and because of the state of mind that it brings on the stoned state in the case of marijuana or the the repressed state i guess not quite repressed but the flatline state of someone who is on chemical drugs like uh, ssris and so on makes it very difficult to cultivate meditation And it may, tends to make things worse, this escapist approach. doesn't help. This isn't the proper way to understand suffering. The second way to understand suffering is dukkha sabhava. Sabhava means reality, something which is intrinsic, has its own intrinsic reality. It means real, the reality of suffering. Reality of suffering is what gets people interested in things like meditation. And reality means here something you can't fix, a part of reality. So simple things like uh, hunger, thirst. You can't escape these things. You, you eat, you're no longer hungry, but guess what? Twelve hours later, you're hungry again. Thirsty being uh, constipated or or having to urinate or defecate simple things heat cold and the more profound ones uh, sickness old age death why sickness old age and death are so important and and so so much stressed in buddhism why they stand out, why they stood out to the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, when he heard about them. is because they signal this shift in understanding. They open up our understanding, make us realize that suffering isn't something you can escape. We're all going to get old, sick, and die, and not much else really has is of much consequence in that case. No matter how much you gain in this life, no matter how su successful you are, we're worm food, as one of my friends put it. We're going to get old, sick, and die, and we just can't escape suffering. This escapism isn't working. It doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, when it fails, uh, you know, in a big way. This is when people begin to take up meditation practice or religion in general, because they have to look beyond for a solution. The escapism isn't working. When you lose some something very precious to you, a, a loved one dies. When you get sick with a with a debilitating illness when you lose some something valuable when something terrible happens depression anxiety these things that you can't escape it often leads people to an interest in things like meditation
still not the truth of suffering. Someone who appreciates this reality hasn't yet understood the truth of suffering. But it's, it's an important first step. It's a very rare thing, a very special thing to have this sense of, of the gravity of the situation. Not that life is a terrible thing and, and, and we're living in hell or anything like that, but it's a very grave, it's a very profound and serious situation. And if you don't approach it properly, it can, of course, lead you to hell in this life. You can have heaven in this life, you can have hell in this life, depending on how you act. And our appreciation of things like dukkha sambhava are an important part of that. So when a person begins to practice meditation, or they take up mindfulness, this is when they begin to see dukkha lakana, the characteristic of suffering. Characteristic of suffering is really something that can only come from a deep um, clarity and presence of mind through things like mindfulness meditation, through the cleansing of one's doors of perception. When one begins to see more clearly, as one begins to see more clearly, the reality of life comes into focus. And you're able to see dukkha means every single experience has the characteristic of dukkha, has the characteristic of suffering. Maybe that's not quite fair to say because the truth is that experiences can't make you suffer in the way we normally think of it but the the reason why we say they have the characteristic is similar to the way the way fire has the characteristic of being hot now we say fire is hot but fire isn't actually hot you understand what heat is it's just a what an increase in the excitement of of particles of the, the the movement the speed something like that right not exactly sure but that's that's just a relative thing it's hot heat comes from the experience of it I mean, in, in the analogy here is that heat comes when you get into contact with the fire. And, and so with experience, suffering comes not just because you experience the phenomenon, but because you grasp at it. It's maybe like when you grasp on the blade of a knife. Buddha talked about grasping things wrongly. Like if you grasp a knife wrongly or if you grasp grass, if you've ever pulled grass out of the out of the ground, you can cut yourself quite severely with things like ferns and so on. When we were young, we used to pull up the ferns and you'd end up with a handful of paper cuts because you had grasped it wrongly. You come to see that the point being that nothing is worth clinging to, and the clinging is what leads to suffering. So 
you start to see that nothing is worth this this activity that is so much ingrained in our psyche what do you do with things cling to them judge them react to them and you start to see the suffering in that process the suffering in in our ordinary interactions with things you start to take on an appreciation of of how much stress we cause on a moment-to-moment -moment basis you see that no experience is worth anything no experience has any intrinsic value the value isn't in experience as happiness isn't from what we experience this is a very hard to understand and appreciate truth if it sounds kind of foreign it's not what you were expecting me to say or if it, it sounds like something you're not sure you're that interested in pursuing then that's okay because it is something that is very foreign to our ordinary state this is something that you need a depth of mind a depth of understanding to see to appreciate but when you do experience this when you release your grasp on things, this is what we mean when we talk about letting go. It's not that enlightened beings no longer experience things because they've shunned them, but they no longer suffer from things because they no longer cling to them. They experience everything, but the mind is no longer clinging, is no longer chasing, is no longer going out after things. It is, in fact, rising above experience, losing any of the enchantment and intoxication with experience. This is what leads to cessation. It's what leads to a, a super mundane, uh, transcendental experience. Experience that it goes beyond or is outside of the realm of experience. So through the practice, the process of seeing more and more clearly about more and more things, about more and more of our interactions with reality, seeing the suffering in, inherent in our engagement, our pursuit, our grasping and clinging. This is called dukkha lakana, seeing that it, it's not about whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. It's about our clinging to things getting stuck on things. And this process, this is the process that leads, of course, for us to see the truth of suffering. The truth of suffering is the final realization, not intellectually, not theoretically, but for ourselves coming to this sort of epiphany, you might say, that nothing is worth clinging to. It's not quite an epiphany because it's not intellectual, it's not a thought. It's just the state of mind that lets go. It's just a moment when the mind, like an ignition, the light bulb goes on, and the mind is lucid and clear and cognizant of this reality, this truth. Nothing is worth clinging to. And so it doesn't cling. It ceases to go, to go out to objects. The mind 
that drops into a state that is outside or, or that is unconnected to experience. It's really hard to hard to describe in that sense, right? But it's true peace. There's a true peace, a peace that comes from understanding the truth of suffering. This is our our goal in Buddhism to see this, to experience this freedom, freedom from all the ephemeral pleasures and and stresses of life. It's a peace and a freedom that changes our the whole foundation of who we are and how we look at the world. So that's the truth of suffering. That's my talk for today. Any questions? We do have questions, Bhante. Okay, let's begin. How can noting hindrances make it easier to focus on one phenomenon such as the stomach? Doesn't it make all phenomena more clear so there would be more distractions? Am I misunderstanding the mechanism? So without, with or without clarity, we experience lots of things. We experience everything. So whether they're clear or not doesn't have any impact on how many things you experience. Not, not exactly. If anything, of course, clarity is, is associated with focus. And so you probably would experience fewer things because you're less, um, well, you're less distracted. See, distraction is caused by lack of clarity. What is distract? How does distraction arise? It arises from the fleeting, flitting mind, a mind that experiences one thing and without stopping to experience it fully and clearly, jumps to another object and continuously jumps from one object to another without ever seeing anything clearly. So no, absolutely not. Of course, noting anything is going to lead to less distraction as your clarity brings everything into focus and cuts off that unwholesome habit of jumping from one thing to another, jumping, jumping. But um, more, more specifically, noting hindrances. Well, when you don't note hindrances, they lead to more hindrances. And lack of hindrances are a part of what causes distraction, or sorry, hindrances are what cause, what contribute to and things like distraction. I mean, distraction itself is a hindrance, but the other hindrances support it. So if you dislike something, that's going to make you flit more quickly. Disliking is something that encourages us to avoid things and to seek out the opposite, seek out alternatives. But, but generally, when you don't note things, it gives rise to hindrances, and hindrances are no exception. In fact, hindrances can be the worst. Hindrances leading to more hindrances. When you note, you cut off the hindrances because you're 
instead seeing things more clearly. So there won't be more things to note. You'll just stop reacting to the things which will allow you to get closer to them to an extent. I mean, it will allow you to stay with an object because the mind isn't in need of rushing off to chase after something it likes or wants or away from something that it doesn't like, it doesn't want, etc. An obstacle to my practice is mostly doubt. I don't think I have the ability or the strength in this difficult path. Is there something more than noting doubt? As a consequence, I practice less. Well, it's probably not just doubt. There's five hindrances, and it's probably one of the others as well. They're, they can be very quick, and you have to be vigilant to catch them. But there may be another one that's very strong that you're not paying attention to. But doubt is a, is a bad one. I mean, doubt will prevent you from practicing. Good ways to overcome doubt are to actually give something a chance because there's nothing about meditation that's worth doubting. It's very clear and very direct. The results are pretty swift and significant. Uh, you can do things like study if you're interested in learning the theory behind meditation. But mostly you just take up the practice. It's good to have a, a structured course. We have these at-home courses if you're interested in taking one, unless you already have, in which case it's a shame that you still have doubt, but doubt can be pernicious. You just have to be patient with it. Ultimately, I would say, don't worry too much about practicing more or less. It's good to hear that you're practicing at all and, and be uh, encouraged by that fact and be patient with yourself. If you have patience, you will certainly have the opportunity to increase your practice. Wouldn't it be enough to only note the six senses, seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, smelling, thinking, since they already cover all possible experiences? Well, they don't really I mean experiences are a bit more complicated than that. The six senses are the six doors for experience. And if you want to get really technical, you, you look at the Abhidhamma, but the, the Abhidhamma is all just mind. So you could just note, say, just note the mind, but that's kind of silly. Experience is more, more of course, more complicated than you're making it out to be. And there are many aspects of experiences that we don't. So, I mean, it might be a little bit misleading for us to say we're noting experiences because we're kind of ignoring we're kind of noting the aspects of experiences more sometimes the physical aspect sometimes various parts of the mental aspect so no noting the six senses is not enough that's it's too the, the experience of it for example in the abhidhamma where we get really technical the experience of the sense when you experience a sense is only one small part of the actual 17 thought moments involved with the experience of something so it revolves around that object but it's so much more there's the judgment 
there's the initiative that, that we take to react to the judgment and to um, take action in response to it and so on. There, there, there's, there's much more going on. There's the physical, there's the mental. And mental is, is a various part. That's why the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness, even the five aggregates. Really, if you want to be a, have a complete un perspective, you have to say that at the six senses, there arise the five aggregates. Those two together give you a better picture of things than just saying the six senses. So when you see, there are the five aggregates. When you hear, there are the five aggregates. And the five aggregates are just the four foundations of mindfulness. It's the same thing, basically. Is it typically correct in meditation to slow down when it feels like noting is becoming too frequent and causing stress? Well, if there's stress, then you note stress, stress. I don't know what you mean by too frequent. If it's more than once per second, then that's probably too quick. But that's just a general guide. Don't go too much faster than that. But there's no need to go any slower than that. If there's stress coming up, then it's not the problem of the noting. In fact, the noting is most likely helping you see that stress. So you should note the stress and, and whatever the discomfort is. In day-to-day -day practice, is it okay to note the whole body at once without noting each task separately? Yes, it's most convenient to just note the four postures of the body. The Buddha recommended this. It's the first thing you read about, one of the first things you read about in the Satipatthana Sutta is noting the four postures of the body. But you can note minor movements and so on. But if you want to just note walking, standing, sitting, lying, that's a great start. It's really the core of day-to-day, -day, daily, everyday practice. I find that emotional feelings located in the heart area is the most prominent for me most of the time. Is this less beneficial to examine than watching the stomach? So you don't want to get obsessive about anything. The thing about the stomach is it's pretty banal, right? There's nothing special and no way to really obsess about it. Also, it's inconstant, so inconsistent, I guess. So it's going to, it's going to, challenge you um, but absolutely you should note whatever emotional feelings they are but emotional feelings aren't located in the heart area there's emotion and then there's the response which may be in the heart area but in the heart area there's only physical sensations so you might feel pain or, or tension or heat or whatever palpitating of the heart all of that is just physical so you'd note that separate from the emotion and if you're not doing that that might lead to this sort of belief that it's not it's it's constantly there so it's important to be able to separate those try and note things and note them for a while if they don't go away after a while it is to your benefit to go back to the stomach something that's a neutral object but note them for a while just after a while if they don't go away go back to the stomach and if they of course if they distract you again go out to them again but always come back it helps to teach the mind to stay more objective and to not get obsessive about things.
is there a way to prevent harmful thoughts from arising? So thoughts aren't harmful. That's a big part of the answer. Our problem, one of our biggest problems is seeing things that aren't problems as problems. So thoughts are not a problem. You can think about suicide or killing someone or any, so any number of terrible things without actually having any intention or interest in, in performing those acts. Right? So suicidal thoughts, for example, there's nothing, I don't have any idea what you're referring to, but suppose someone had suicidal thoughts, it's not a problem. They're just thoughts. They become a problem when you think, oh, that means something. Maybe I want to kill myself or I, I must want to kill myself. Otherwise, why would I think that? It's not true. Thoughts are, are crazy sometimes. You can never really be sure where they're coming from. And that's one of the things you see through meditation. You stop taking your thoughts so seriously. You try and just see them as thoughts. But the other thing is we don't try to prevent anything from coming, even the harmful emotions, for example, because emotions can be harmful. They can make us sick mentally and physically. But even those, we don't try to prevent them, except in the sense of preventing them through being mindful. See, when you're mindful, there's a prevention because the trigger that would cause the emotion to arise is, is absent. Rather than saying this is bad or this is good, we say this is this. That's a basic explanation of what's going on. And when you do that, you cut off the potential for the arising. There's no opportunity for the negative, the harmful states to arise. So if you haven't read our booklet on how to meditate, that might be a good place to start. If you want to sign up for an at-home course, there's links now on the screen and they're in the description of the video as well. While I'm doing walking meditation, my mind goes to previous activity and points out that it ceased. When moving my foot, mind reflects on lifting that ceased. Can this be a hindrance? Do you have advice on this? Yeah, you should stop and say thinking, thinking. I mean, the mind that notices is, a, is an important part of the clarity that we're looking for. But the mind that then reflects on that is a bit of a distraction and it can be quite intellectual where you think that there's some benefit to that thinking so you analyze and reflect you should try and be vigilant about noting that you sure, certainly shouldn't encourage that but when you see the cessation well that's a that's an important thing but you have to just be mindful when you start reflecting on it because of course we want to be aware of what's present not get caught up in what's already passed How does one meditate with intense feelings of fear or anxiety? So the thing about intense feelings is that they're still just feelings. There's no cutoff limit where beyond which you, you can't be mindful. The problem is, a problem is that we judge the feelings as being intense or too intense or un, unbearable, overwhelming, and so on. And you can note things like overwhelmed, overwhelmed, and so on. One, one important part of noting is, is to be able to break things up into their actual realities. So it's easy to lose sight of what's actually happening in favor of how we describe it. If you say, I'm depressed, when we say it like that, it's something, you know, what, what do you do about that? I'm depressed. It's, you, you've, 
we've brought ego into it, this, this illusory idea that I am something, like this is a, a quality, like, like a birthmark or like a, the nose on your face or something. But it's not. There are moments of depression, perhaps, and it's those what you should what you should try to note. Try and note the moments, and note the different aspects of experiences. Like for anxiety, you know, with fear and anxiety, a huge part of fear and anxiety is going to be the physical, which isn't fear and isn't anxiety, but is conflated with the anxiety and fear. When we talk about a panic attack, you don't have a panic attack. It's more complicated than that. There's feedback loops where you feed off of the physical and the mental feeds off the physical and it bounces back and forth and, and snowballs out of control. So try and note the physical separate from the mental when you feel tension or stress or pain. Note all of that as well. Feelings, butterflies in your stomach with anxiety, heart beating fast, tension in the shoulders, those kind of things. Don't mistake those for anxiety or fear. They aren't. And that's what makes us feel like it's intense often. When those things are just physical, there's nothing. In fact, when you know things like anxiety and fear, the physical sensations don't go away. And so you think, I'm still anxious, I'm still afraid, but you're not. There's just tension and stress, and those take a while to go away. Physical goes away slower than mental. During meditation, it's easy to note like and dislike feelings. I have problems noting neutral feelings because they become pleasant, and I know I'm clinging to neutral feelings. Do you have advice for this? Well, like and dislike aren't feelings, they're reactions. So feelings are just pleasure, pain, and neutral, calm. But, and it's certainly possible to like pleasure and to like calm feelings. To like painful feelings, I'm not sure it's directly technically possible, but you can certainly like the, the related physical sensations. You can like pain, yes, physical pain. You can like it, it's possible. But uh, neutral feelings can be associated with liking, so you just have to note liking in the same way as if it was a happy feeling, a pleasant feeling, and you liked it. But if you don't, if there's not liking, you can just say calm, calm. I wouldn't worry too much about catching this or that. If you like something, you know, liking. If you feel happy, you're not happy. If you feel calm, however it approaches, however, however it presents itself to you. When I start to feel the mind is slowing, I start to get deeply afraid. How do I step away and not be consumed by this fear? So mindfulness isn't about stepping away. Let's be very clear. Get this, get this into your psyche. Because this is a huge part of what we're trying to change. As I was saying earlier, our need to step away and not be consumed by things. There's no I to be consumed, so it's not actually a danger. It's just reality and it keeps coming and coming and coming running away from it doesn't solve anything. So when there's a feeling of slowness, you can note that. And then when you start to feel deeply afraid or afraid, let's not judge it and say it's deeply, let's just say it's afraid. Start to feel afraid, you say afraid, afraid. When you feel a dislike 
or anxiety about the fear. You can feel afraid of the fear, right? And you want to step away so it doesn't get overwhelming. You know, you note that fear as well. It's a process. It takes time. But if you do that, you'll find that nothing really can overwhelm you. Mindfulness is about facing things, confronting, being able to face things without judgment, without reaction. How are we supposed to get by in the world during a pandemic such as this? I'm feeling suffocated by the karmic implications of doing anything remotely out of convenience for myself if the possibility of spreading the virus looms, such as if I have to potentially go in someone else's space. Is this too extreme a stance? Well, I think you might be conflating the physical reality with the mental reality. So if you have a physical reality um, related to not going into other people's space and, and changing your lifestyle in certain ways, that, that doesn't have anything to do with how you feel about it, right? Just as if you were to go out into the world as normal before when you went out into the world as normal, that was also had, had nothing to do with how you feel about it. So if you feel suffocated, that's not actually intrinsic to the state of things. So you get how are you supposed to get by the same way you got by before? Supposed to be mindful and try to overcome and, and prevent the bad habits of feeling suffocated, for example. But you can see how that's fed by fed and encouraged by your view that you're responsible. So it's certainly worth uh, reassuring you that you don't need to feel responsible for any karmic implications. Karma relates to, karma in Buddhism refers to our inclination of mind. Are you inclined to hurt other people? Well, that's bad karma. If you're not inclined, or suppose, you, as you say, with convenience, it's true. You can be inclined to ignore your, the harm of the things you do to others. But this isn't, this isn't an intellectual exercise. It's not like, oh, if I do that, that might hurt someone, and therefore doing it would be uh, negligent or would be, would be um, self-serving, selfish, and so on. That's not true at all. It's just that suppose you were about to cough and you didn't put your hand over your mouth or, or wear a mask or, you know, of course, if you put your face in someone else's face, that would be a terrible, terrible karma. But even just when you think about covering up and you say, oh, I don't care. I don't care if someone catches my cold or my flu or my coronavirus. That mind state, you see, that's what's the problem, where you where you don't care, you you have lack of empathy or lack of, lack of sympathy for other people, not empathy, sympathy, lack of sympathy. You don't care whether someone hurt, suffers from your your actions. You should be conscientious. That's an important thing. You don't have to be paranoid, of course.
So yes, yeah, too extreme. Are negative emotions, like anxiety, a result of thought patterns, or can they arise without thought? Why does it matter? If you're anxious, just say anxious, anxious. Sorry, not to really, not, not to be snide or anything, but, but I want to help you focus on what's important. It's not important what causes something, it's important the nature of things, you see, because we cling to things not because of what caused them or something like that. We cling to things because of how we perceive them. Oh, this is good for me. This is nice. When we see that they're not actually nice. Like anxiety, for example. We see that anxiety is really a bad thing. It doesn't help us. So surprise, you, you, you may challenge that and think, oh, I already know that anxiety is not good for you. But I challenge that. If you really understood anxiety and saw it clearly and became familiar with it, you'd never get anxious. Your mind would just never give rise to anxiety. The process of enlightenment is seeing the suffering inherent in things like anxiety. So it really doesn't matter what's causing things. Do you think having too much time on your hands is a bad thing as a Buddhist who is less advanced? Is it advisable to stay somewhat busy so our defilements don't have as much chance to grow? It doesn't really matter. It's not going to help you to stay busy. It might even harm you, depending on what you're busy. Now, the exception is in terms of doing good deeds, charity, morality, um, helping others, you know, doing wholesome things. That's a good thing to get busy, even though it's not necessarily related to the path. It is going to support you on the path. So this is something that we, people who didn't grow up Buddhist, often ignore, is this generosity and kindness towards others. It's a very good way to fill your time. Supplementary practices, if you feel like you just can't be mindful all the time. But the real answer is, well, just be mindful all the time. Can liking and practicing martial arts result in bad karma? Well, liking is bad karma in itself. Practicing martial arts, well, it's not the practicing, it's the reason why you're practicing. Why in the world would someone practice martial arts, right? From a Buddhist monastic perspective, why would you do that? And your reason is probably unwholesome. Unwholesome in the sense that our reason for doing most things is unwholesome. There's really not a lot that we need to do. And martial arts, of course, has no reason. There's no there's no wholesome reason for doing martial arts, not from a Buddhist perspective. Now, I have you know, martial arts teachers would would challenge that because it's it is a way of, for example, getting kids to um, to learn more about their bodies, and it can even tangentially lead to mindfulness. I used to teach martial arts. I used to teach. I was almost a black belt, but I never was that dead. I was never really dedicated to it. But when I was a teenager, I was quite in, I was somewhat into it. And so I started teaching it at high school, um, you know, just the very basics. And it was great because it, it brought confidence to people. It made people feel more, feel more self-assured, especially young women, you know, who often feel um, lack of, lack of power, lack of uh, self, what, self-assurance, no? 
and uh, it, it was it was really I did it for a little while and it was really good. So arguably there's some worldly good there. I'm not sure exactly how wholesome it is from a Buddhist perspective on a deep level because there's so much bad involved. I remember the horrible conceit and ego that you saw in the in the dojo and, and just some it, it can be very unwholesome as well. So I think it's martial arts as an example might be a um vehicle you know a, a way of transmitting or, or what's the word a, a way of conveying a catalyst perhaps if you're a spirit if you're a buddhist person deep down because i also taught meditation as a part of when when i would take over the classes in the dojo because the sensei was out i would teach people meditation before i was even into meditation but i like the meditation part I did visualization meditation stuff. I'd been reading by Deepak Chopra and stuff, but but it was really you know there there was something there, and that's wholesome. So you know potentially good, but I think martial arts is just it's too far off. You really don't need something like martial arts. Maybe Tai Chi, but there's there's problems with Tai Chi, for example, as well because you get intoxicated by the 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 pleasant states and so on, the calm states. Not bad, but here's the thing: is if you if you have time to do something like that, you you would have a much better impact if you instead taught people basic meditation or you know engaged in basic meditation, like walking meditation, for example. And people who teach martial arts, if only they were teaching meditation, because you'd be teaching not the same people; you'd be teaching people who are higher on a higher spiritual level, like people who are more ready to accept, to, to appreciate things that are really profound and important. And those people would then go out and help others. You know, you're helping higher on the, I don't want to say food chain, but it's kind of like the food or the, it's like a pyramid scheme. Maybe I even don't know the higher on the pyramid, higher on the hierarchy. So you're helping more. You're doing a better job. You're getting closer to the source. It's so roundabout to say that martial arts might arguably have some benefit for the people who practice it. It's, I mean, that being said, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with martial arts. I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, sex isn't even... It's, it's, it's unwholesome, and martial arts probably is mostly unwholesome, but they're not evil, you know. Certainly martial arts, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not as unwholesome as sex. So you're you're doing better. <laughs> you're doing good in that sense. And it's certainly not a terrible pastime. Except where it gets into the toxic masculinity, for example. Yeah, toxic states where people are are they're just horrible, become horrible human beings as a result of their ego and so on. That, that, that can be unpleasant. How do I translate my practice of noting and seeing things clearly? into day-to-day -day activities like working or dealing with difficult co-workers. Well, if you read our booklet on how to meditate, that might be a good place to start. It sounds like you're doing noting already, but it does talk about that a little bit in day-to-day -day activities. I mean, as I said earlier, one of the basic ones is to note the postures of the body, but when you talk about more specific things like dealing with difficult co-workers, 
you're still breaking it down into the ordinary experiences. You're still standing or walking or sitting, and believe it or not, those are still going to be important parts of um, how you deal with that situation. But beyond that, of course, there's going to be emotions, and you can note those. The, the key is taking it from a per first-person perspective instead of stepping into the other person's space mentally, you know, like thinking about them, what they're doing. Because who cares about them being difficult? Them, them being difficult is, is, is no part of your mindfulness experience. Focus much, much more and or solely even on your own state, how you react to things. We're sometimes afraid to do this in the world because it seems like we might miss out, we might be taken advantage of. Really, mindfulness really doesn't do that. It sometimes makes you lose some opportunities, but much, much more. It just makes you stronger and more appreciated, appreciated by others and more powerful to others. Like if you read about the Buddha, we were just reading this morning, this guy twice, last week and this week, he comes up to the Buddha, sure that he's gonna he's gonna throw the Buddha around like a like a wrestler in debate. And he doesn't even get off one question and the Buddha's already demolished his argument. And you can see how mindful how mindfully the Buddha does it. When you're mindful you don't overreact, you don't get out of balance. Think of it as like a martial art. You don't get taken off balance and you can't be thrown about like a wrestler tossed about like we tossed people about in martial arts mindfulness is like finding firm footing such that nobody can trip you up okay Bhante, we've come to the end of the hour the tier one questions are covered good Perfect timing. Thank you all. Good group. Wow. Over 100 people. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for coming out. I hope it was a good experience. Sadhu. Sadhu. Wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering.